Kath Clark, and I'm a member of the 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. services. And again, it's my privilege to read the scriptures with you. We've got two readings from Matthew's Gospel, one from chapter 12 and one from chapter 21. I'll give you a moment to open your Bibles. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And then moving over to chapter 21. Commencing at the first verse. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphagare on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them back right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus has instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. Let me formally welcome and introduce our guest speaker today. It's Dr. John Dixon. Uh, John is a great friend of all of us here at St. Matthew's Church. He's spoken many times, but if you're not familiar with John, uh, he's an Anglican minister. He was formerly the senior minister at St. Andrews at Roseville. He's also an academic uh, with PhD in first century history 
and teaches courses on the life of Jesus at numerous academic institutions, including Sydney University, as well as Oxford University, when he can get there in this kind of crazy COVID world. Uh, he is the creator of the Underception Ministry and particularly their podcast, uh, which is well worth tuning in for, and also the author of at least 18 books that I know about. Uh, but he's a great speaker. He's a great friend. And if I can just encourage you uh, to put your hands together wherever you are. Uh, I know that's a bit of a joke. But anyway, uh, come on up, John. And um, we're trying to do it live here and uh, experience the reality of church. And uh, great to have you here, John. Well, uh, thank you, all, all four of you. Um, uh, and thanks for the invitation to be here. There, there are lots of um, very odd things uh, about our, our lockdown. Uh, not getting to Oxford is, is one of them, uh, for me, very disappointing. Uh, perhaps even a little more disappointing than that is uh, missing out on my uh, many trips to the Snowy Mountains, um, which I've done since I was a little kid, and if this lockdown continues on, uh, I'm not going to get to it this year. Um, and my wife, Buff, would, will tell you that uh, to this day when we drive to the Snowy Mountains together and arrive at the country town of Kuma, uh, just shy of the mountains, I'll uh, wind the window down and uh, stick my head out and let the um, beautiful chilly mountain air uh, rush through my face. And I've been doing that since I was five and uh, perhaps lamely I, I still do it. I raised all my kids to do it until they were too cool to do it. And uh, adding to the excitement of arriving at, at Kuma, at least when I was a kid, was this giant sign uh, on the northern side of Kuma that said, Gateway to the Snowy Mountains. It's not there anymore, but whenever I saw that, uh, this ordinary town of Kuma became this extraordinary town uh, for me. It was uh, the gateway to my happy place, uh, no doubt. You have your own uh, happy places, uh, your own sacred uh, places. Uh, I'm pretty sure for people uh, around here that that water over there is uh, one of your very happy places. Um, but my point is, none of these kind of sacred spaces could match the feeling ancient Jews had in that passage that Kath just read to us when they uh, made their way in pilgrimage three times a year to the holy city of Jerusalem. And they arrived at the little village three kilometers shy of Jerusalem called Bethphagar on the um, uh, uh, eastern side of, of Jerusalem. And they would often come to Bethphagar uh, or Bethany right, right by and uh, camp the night there and then the very next day, uh, get up early and walk up uh, the um, eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And then when they got to the ridge, looked down at this massive panoramic view of the holy city of Jerusalem. So inspiring to them. And in the very front of their view was the Jerusalem temple. Uh, described as one of the wonders of the ancient world, a temple uh, that is bigger than our stadium Australia, actually. It was, it was massive. And for ancient Jews, like Jesus, uh, this wasn't just a happy place. Uh, this was a sacred place. This was uh, an inspirational place. Uh, the temple is no longer there, and I'll explain why in a moment. But we do know what it looked like from 
archaeology and documents, we know it looked like this. Two giant courts. Uh, you could fit more than 30,000 people just into one of those courts. And uh, in the middle, the temple proper where sacrifices were made. It was a very special, sacred place. And let me uh, begin by saying a few things about the Jerusalem temple so that we can understand one of the key claims of Jesus himself. There are really uh, four ways ancient people thought about the Jerusalem temple. They thought of it as a place where pilgrims in their tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands during the Passover festival at least, uh, could come and say their prayers and, the, and, and sing their praises to God. It's where they could hear divine teaching from the best rabbis in the country. They'd go into those forecourts and listen to divine teaching. And of course, it was a place of forgiveness of sins. Um, in the center of uh, the temple is where animals were sacrificed. In the ancient Jewish system, uh, a lamb or a goat or a dove was sacrificed and atonement was won. And this uh, sacrifice was a picture of um, the punishment uh, falling on the animal and passing over uh, the pilgrim so that we might be forgiven. And, and the fourth thing to know about the Jerusalem temple in Jesus' day is that people thought of it as the footstool of God, the divine presence. Um, uh, ancient Jews taught, uh, quite rightly, that God um, is not physical and God is everywhere in the universe, but they thought of the Jerusalem temple as the place where his feet, as it were, touched the earth and, and you were never um, nearer the presence of God than when you came into this temple precinct. So, arriving at the crest of the Mount of Olives and looking down on this temple evoked feelings of national pride and spiritual awe. And it's in this context, with tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of pilgrims looking on, that Jesus decided to get a donkey and ride down the western side of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem amidst incredible joy from the crowds. We're told that the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means salvation to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then we're told that Jesus entered into the temple precinct. And instead of praying or singing or offering a sacrifice or even teaching, we're told he entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. Uh, priests in this day would make a profit by selling the sacrificial animals uh, to uh, pilgrims. He overturned the tables of the money changers. Uh, they would exchange one kind of coin, a denarius, for another kind of coin, a, a shekel of tire, and make a profit in the exchange and uh, overturned the benches of those selling doves. It turns out that Jesus' arrival at the Jerusalem temple is really Jesus versus the temple. Um, and over the course of the next uh, few days in Matthew's gospel, in all the gospels really, um, Jesus would pronounce judgment, not just on the temple authorities, the priests and so on, 
but on the physical temple itself. Jesus would actually utter a concrete prophecy of this temple's destruction. In uh, a couple of chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, we read that Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That must have been an unbelievable statement in the early 30s AD. But here's the thing. 40 years later, that great temple would indeed be completely destroyed. A war would break out between Israel and Rome in the year 66. Within five years, the Romans would besiege uh, the city of Jerusalem. And over a six to eight week period, they eventually breached the walls, went up to the temple mount and burnt the thing down and started pushing all the rocks off the temple platform. We have direct sources describing what happened. It was a murderous and catastrophic event, just as Jesus said. And in fact, um, this conquering of Jerusalem and of the Jewish people was so important to the Romans, they minted it on their coins for the next two decades. Um, these are the famous uh, Judea captor coins. Uh, Judea, or the people of uh, the land of the Jews, uh, conquered or captured. And uh, if you can see the image, it's a Jewish man and a Jewish woman enslaved under a palm branch, conquered by Rome. Nothing of the temple proper remains except a tiny bit of the western retaining wall. Not the high wall, just the retaining wall that held up the platform on which the temple stood. And here it is to this day. Um, I've taken a few people from this church uh, on a history tour of Israel, and so I know some of you have been to this very spot. It's called the Wailing Wall. And when you visit this site, uh, the Israeli government has put up a sign telling people about the significance of this spot on earth. And here's what it says. The Temple Mount is the focal point of creation. Jews have prayed in its shadows for hundreds of years in an expression of their faith in the rebuilding of the temple. The sages said about it, the divine presence never moves from the Western Wall. Our Orthodox Jewish friends still believe God's presence touches the earth at this point, and they are still praying daily for the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. The problem is, of course, uh, that where the temple once stood is one of the holiest sites in Islam, the Golden Dome, the great prayer hall of Islam, built uh, in the year 690 AD. Now, I know this all sounds like just history, but actually, within these dramatic historical events is one of Jesus' most radical claims. Jesus said that He came as the temple as the true temple. According to John's gospel, um, when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, the Jews responded to him, John chapter 2, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? And Jesus answered them, 
destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now I know that's a bizarre statement and you sort of might skim across it, not really lay much emphasis on it, but the point is his body, soon to be crucified and raised on the third day, is the new temple, the replacement temple. And this isn't the only time Jesus has identified himself in some weird way as the temple. Um, Every time Jesus handed out forgiveness of sins, he was usurping the role exclusively held by the temple. Because pilgrims would come to the temple with a sacrificial animal, the priest would sacrifice it on their behalf, and then they would know that they were forgiven because the animal has taken the punishment of, of the pilgrim. But here is Jesus, wherever he goes, in Jerusalem, up in Galilee, handing out forgiveness like it's his to offer. Um, last time I was here, I preached on this passage from Mark chapter 2, and it's a good example of Jesus handing out forgiveness. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, this is the man who's been let through the roof up in Capernaum, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's almost as if Jesus was a mobile temple. Wherever he was, there was the forgiveness that you really could only get from the temple. And there are more explicit uh, references to this theme of Jesus as temple. Uh, in one of the passages Kath read us a moment ago, the Pharisees are upset uh, with the disciples of Jesus for working on the Sabbath. Now, the fourth commandment of the uh, Ten Commandments is don't work on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, who are very strict uh, religious adherents, saw the disciples doing what they thought was work, and they complained about it. And Jesus' reply is stunning. When the Pharisees uh, saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, working. Jesus answered, Haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, that is, work on the Sabbath day, and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. The logic is really important to follow. Um, when priests work in the temple precinct on the Sabbath day, they are exempt from the ban on working. And Jesus is saying in the same way, when his disciples work on the Sabbath in his presence, they are exempt from the Sabbath law. Why? Because he is the temple. In fact, as those words say, he is greater than the temple. Now, much more can and should be said about this topic if it were a different kind of lecture. Uh, but let me quote Tom Wright, a very important New Testament historian now at Oxford University. My conclusion from this brief survey of the evidence is that Jesus believed himself called to act as the new temple. When people were in his presence, it was as if they were in the temple. But if the temple was itself 
the greatest of Israel's incarnational symbols, that is, a symbol of God's presence, the conclusion was inevitable. Jesus was claiming, at least implicitly, to be the place where and the means by which Israel's God was at last personally present with his people. Let me try and conclude. When Jesus entered the Jerusalem temple, overturned the priestly tables, and announced the destruction of that Jerusalem temple, he wasn't just acting as a social radical, which is how this is sometimes interpreted. He was replacing the temple, a temple that indeed would be destroyed within a generation of those words. Everything the temple meant for Israel for a thousand years was now available for all nations in Jesus. Through his teaching, healings, death, and resurrection, everything that the temple offered could now be available everywhere. So to remind you of the things the temple meant, the hunger for divine teaching can be satisfied not in the courts of a physical temple, but in the words of Jesus in the Gospels available for everyone. True pilgrims declare their prayers and their praises not within the walls of one sacred precinct, but wherever they gather in Jesus' name. The presence of God, which all humans long for, can be found not in a place in East Jerusalem, but in a personal connection with Jesus Christ. And the longing for forgiveness of sins can be found not through a priest or a sacrifice, but through Jesus' one sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. Now, of course, many religions today, other than Christianity, still look for all these things in sacred space, in particular pilgrimage sites or temples. Uh, this is true of our Muslim neighbors, our Hindu and Buddhist neighbors, and our Orthodox Jewish neighbors are praying daily for the rebuilding of the temple so that all this might once again be true. And interestingly, many not-so-religious people are searching for all these things, under different names, of course. Um, we might not say we're looking for divine teaching. How many people long for a wisdom that lifts them above themselves? How many people might not talk about prayers and praise, but wish to have a sense of awe at something greater than ourselves in the universe? We might not talk explicitly about being in God's presence, but I meet tons of people who long for a spirituality that can go with them wherever they go. And although many people might not talk about forgiveness of sins, so many people long to atone for the wrongs of the past. Well, the claim of Jesus and the claim of Christianity ever since, is that all of this 
can be found by trusting Jesus, the true temple. Lord, will you please, in your mercy, give us insight, clarity of mind, humility of heart, that we might know ourselves, but also, and above all, know Jesus Christ, your true temple. Amen. Thank you, John. Someone truly greater has arrived, which is wonderful. Um, but we're going to transition and move to a Q&A time. And if you're there watching, uh, we've got the capacity now through text messaging to have Q&A come in and you can send a message in. The number is there on the screen in front of you, 0488 819 If you want to text that through, uh, our tech team will get that up on the screen very shortly and we'll have a number of questions for John to ask. I've got one that's come in, first of all, um, if I can start with this one, John. Paul calls Christians a temple as well. How does that fit with Jesus being the temple? Yeah, good theological nerd, whoever asked that one. Um, it's interesting because Paul's letters all, all are written before the destruction of the temple. They're all written before 70 AD, which is a pretty good indication that Christians were already, before the fall of the temple, already banking on there being a different kind of temple. And this no doubt comes from Jesus' teaching originally. Um, and the simple answer is, see, Jesus thought of the church, the community of Christ, as the body of Christ. That's one of his key images, right? The, the church, not the physical church, but the community of people are Christ's body. So it's just a simple logic to then say, ah, the people of God are the temple because they are the body of Christ. We are in God's presence uh, because we are under the name of Jesus. We don't need a physical temple. No. No. And of course, the early Christians met in homes and, um, and, and by the river, they didn't have buildings. So um, they, they, they were very happy with this no temple idea because now um, worship could be available to everyone everywhere. Fantastic. Next question. Is there any significance to the Western Wall that still stands, which is in Jerusalem? Um, why wouldn't the Romans have destroyed it? Because it was only a retaining wall. Um, so... The way you've got to picture it is, um, uh, it, it's like a retaining wall. It's like what's holding up your garden, right? It, it, it's a retaining wall. Um, they didn't, they didn't think of it as of any value. Apart from anything, some of the stones there are 500 tons. Some of the base stones that are still there, 500 tons per stone, right? And no one knows how they were moved there. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so there's nothing of the temple proper. All of the high high walls are, are down, but just the retaining wall that's holding up the mountain, holding up the mount. The platform where the temple once stood is still there. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's significant. It was a lovely place. I love taking people there. I'm sure it is. <laughs> One day I'll hopefully get to go. Okay. Um, next question. Why do we as Christians still put such significance on our church buildings? And, you know, there's a whole language, like mm. it's the house of God or whatever yeah. that, you know, comes into kind of Christendom. Mm. Your thoughts on that? Uh, look, I think it's just very human. Um, to want place. And there's a sense in which um, we know God is the God of creation and God is everywhere. And so a physical space can mark his presence in a special psychological way. But Christians ought not think God is specially present here. God is just as present out, out the back if you're surfing. Um, uh, he, he's especially present at Mount Perisher. Uh, sorry, I, didn't, I shouldn't have said that. But um, he, is, he is everywhere. I knew you were going to say that, John. I, th I think it's just a human thing uh, to, to think of these 
places as uh, special and sacred, but it, um, that's more psychological than it is theological. And I think there's something psychological for us with church buildings because it's where we meet. And so it's a place that reminds us of the fellowship that we have together in a special way. Yeah. And, but and if this were knocked down and you had to meet down at the beach... It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. No. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Um, why are Jews still holding on to the old temple to this day? And you'll see pictures of Jerusalem of every day they're there and you'll see Orthodox Jews literally praying at the wall. Yeah. Well, this old part of the old temple. Yeah. And our Orthodox Jewish friends are living around us pray every day um, this set of 18 prayers called the Shemona Ezra. It's like the Lord's Prayer. And Orthodox Jews literally pray it every day. And one of the prayers is for the rebuilding of the Jerusalem Temple. They are longing for it all to be in, uh, reenacted. And, and the reason is very simple. Um, they're looking for atonement for sins. And so when the Temple was destroyed, Judaism had to radically transform itself to think, oh my goodness, the temple used to be the center of forgiveness, of prayers and praises, of the presence of God. Now, how do we, in, an, in the interim period, until God rebuilds that thing, how do we live as faithful Jews? And they've developed an entire system, written in books called the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, to cope with that. But they all know that ultimately there has to be a temple in order to reenact atonement. Um. Second last question, because I'm going to ask the last one. Okay, so this is our second last one. What's with the mention of King David and his companions in Matthew 12, verse 3 and 4 that we had in the first reading? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just that in the Old Testament, um, David, who was uh, being chased about by his enemies, um, once had a meal uh, in the temple precinct um, and uh, he, he ate the bread that would normally be sort of just temple bread for the priests. Okay, but... David wasn't a priest and yet he was the king and he ate the bread and he wasn't guilty of breaking any temple laws and Jesus is just picking up that weird story in the Old Testament to say well the son of David is here now and that 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 one is greater than the temple um, and so his disciples have a freedom that uh, King David enjoyed in the Old Testament. Okay um, a question that came in at eight o'clock which I thought was a very interesting one for people sometimes you'll hear of Christians um, outside of our tradition, but in other traditions, who speak of their belief that somehow the temple's going to be rebuilt back in Jerusalem and that kind of marks the end of all things and Jesus' return. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I just don't think it's true. Um, That's that, a nice, simple answer. <laughs> yeah. There are just too many lines of evidence that, that what the New Testament teaches, what, what Jesus taught, what all the apostles taught, is that there's a new temple that replaces the physical temple. And that temple is, is more glorious than the physical temple because it's available to all nations. And so all these prophecies in the Old Testament about the temple in the final days being for all nations and being spectacularly large, it wouldn't even fit in Jerusalem, they are all fulfilled, not in a physical building, but in um, where Jesus is named. Wherever Jesus is named um, uh, by people, that's where his presence is. That's the fulfillment of the temple. And the idea that we're going to rebuild a temple, um, for Christians, the, the idea of temple being rebuilt and therefore um, atonement being made by the sacrifice of animals, which is the central mm. ritual of the temple, is so at odds with the heartbeat of the New Testament that Christ is the end of all sacrifice and therefore is the end of the temple. 
because he is the temple. He is the thing the whole thing pointed forward to. The greater thing has already arrived. Yeah. Let's keep focused on him. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, John, for coming. We're going to look forward to you coming back in the next two weeks. Thanks. And we've got two more to look forward to. Uh, the whole topic of Jesus is God is what we're going to look forward to next week. And then really at the heartbeat of Christianity is the whole concept of servant. And that's where we're going on the third week. But I invite you to come back. And you might be someone who has just tuned in recently. You might be new to the things of the Christian faith. Uh, let me just give you two next steps. One is just to come back next week and have a listen to what John has to say. And importantly, what we find in the Gospels about Jesus. But the second thing I'd invite you to do as a next step, if you're curious about the Christian faith or wanting to know more, is just to pick up your Bible and read one of the Gospels, because that is a great thing to do. But at this point, we're going to...